0: created live on fireside
1: the following program was recorded live on fireside chat if you'd like to participate in these chats join us every thursday at noon eastern time at firesidechat.com slash scott monty have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is how he came to embrace the things that advanced him Welcome to Timeless Leadership where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty, and if you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I write about these topics, and the Timeless Leadership podcast, you can do so through TimelessTimely.com. And of course, if you get around to giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate that because that helps other people find this show. We do run as a recording after we have gone live on Fireside Chat, and that's how people can listen to it who aren't with us while we're live on the show. This week, together, we are exploring innovation. Well, what is innovation? It's more than ideas. It's, you know, I mean, we get ideas all the time, but ideas by themselves exist in a vacuum Henry Ford said vision without execution is just hallucination and innovation is more than creativity creativity is the ability to express ourselves in unique and sometimes artistic ways when we take ideas and creative inspiration and bring them to life in a reliable, repeatable way execution execution as Henry Ford called it, that's innovation. Or, as defined by our guest today, innovation is about consistently coming up with new, great, and reliable ideas. Innovation is vital for businesses to be successful. Every C-suite leader hankers for innovation. And if you don't learn to come up with new ideas on a regular basis, you'll be overtaken and crushed by other businesses that do. But how do you innovate? That's where Carla Johnson comes in. Carla is a world-renowned storyteller, speaker, and prolific author. She's also trained thousands of people worldwide to embrace change, create better ideas, and in turn transform their businesses now she's teaching the same skills in her new book rethink innovation how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes carla's five-step framework takes the confusion and pure luck out of idea generation and turns it into something achievable every time Carla, welcome to Timeless Leadership.
0: Hi, Scott. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Well, I'm glad we could get you on the show on uh, this innovative new app, Fireside Chat. Um, So, uh, Carla, tell me, when did you first become fascinated by innovation?
0: You know, Scott, it's it's an interesting question because as I look back to where I really got the spark, for all of this, I think it went back to when I worked with design architects and I was fascinated with their ability to take inspiration from another culture, another time, another design style and morph that into something completely new. And, you know, when we think of innovation, lots of times we think of the the Teslas and the Netflix and the Googles and companies like that. But there's so much... Um, innovation in different industries and different types of work that I think isn't always brought into that that conversation about innovation. But it was that ability that I learned and saw from design architects that now I see happens everywhere with these prolific innovators.
1: Mm. You know that that's interesting, Carl. I've written a number of times about, you know, just taking the time to be inspired by everything and anything around you you know if if you're open to it and if you put your phone down <laughs> for once in a while
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have to agree with you on that you yeah
1: <laughs> I mean you you can that's where daydreaming comes into play I mean you can be looking out the window and something can go by or something can just kind of hit you and you you never know when the inspiration is going to to, to come at you
0: you know and it's true I think about um, my kids are teenagers now but I think about just walking to the park with a young child, and there's so much to see and discover and explore and it's just something that, as we become adults and we start to get into our um, our everyday life and think about efficiency and how many things can we get done and and that type of mindset for our day, we lose that sense of wonder, and I think it's that sense of wonder that really is the the first spark and the fuel for innovation.
1: Mm. Well, you know, how, how do you recapture that sense of wonder? I mean, because I think we all had it as children at some point and somewhere along the way we lose it. We, I I remember going to, going to England for the first time when I was 23 years old and I went with a friend who had been over there many times and he was probably in his late forties, early fifties or so. And he said to me how, he was enjoying the hey-wow syndrome as he re-experienced it through my first time there. So how how can we recapture that sense of wonder that we simply lived with every day when we were children?
0: You know, it's interesting. There's some research that I came across from the University of North Dakota. And these researchers had two groups of people. And with the one group of people, they said... Um, pretend you woke up one morning and you found out that you had the day off. You know, instead of going to work, what would you do? And this group of people said things like, I'd catch up on email, I'd do the laundry, I'd run some errands, you know, I'd take a nap. You know, very, very adult, common kind of things that we do to um, help alleviate that day-to-day pressure on on our lives that builds up. But for the second group... They said the same thing, you know, let's pretend that you woke up this morning and, and found out that you had the day off of work. What would you do? And, oh, by the way, let's also pretend you're seven years old. And this <laughs> this group said, I'd ride my bike, I'd eat ice cream all day, I'd go see my grandma. You know, it's all of those playful things that we naturally do as a child. Mm. And I think that that's one of the first things that we can do to start to reconnect with that sense. Mm is pretend, pretend you're 7 years old and what would this experience be like and there's some there's some other research that I found that this gentleman followed kids from the time they were 5 to 15 and compared that to his research with adults and he found that this natural creative genius that these 5 year olds had you know 98% of them tested at the creative genius level but by the time they were adults only 2% did Wow, And I think there's there's a lot of reasons why that happens. But I think the more we can keep that sense of wonder and that, you know, hey, wow, feeling that you had going to London for the first time, the more it gives us a really different perspective on the world that we're in. And, yeah. and I almost wonder if to, to a certain degree that may start to spark and awaken now that we're able to travel about, at least in the United States. I know you recently traveled. So I'm curious like did you have a little bit of that hey wow sense of going back out into the world and traveling?
1: Oh, I totally did. You know, I the last year, year and a half or so as we hunkered down. And you know, I've worked from home for 7 years now. So this 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 notion of, you know, being separated from an office is not a new thing for me, but you know, being locked down or pseudo lockdown has been really different. And for me the last year and a half, my, my Instagram feed has been bereft of inspirational (laughs) content because I'm seeing the same thing every day. And and actually to, to combat that late last year, I I realized I wanted to go through an inventory, all of my bow ties. I, I have no idea how many bow ties I have, but it's kind of my signature thing. And somebody said, how many do you have? I said, well, let's do a little project. So I took a picture of a new bow tie every day and made that you know, kind of that daily uh, visual inspiration that kind of shook things up a little bit. Um, and spoiler alert, I have 142. Um, but, <laughs> but I was just in Lexington, Kentucky, and, you know, was just really taken by the architecture and uh, the different ways of looking at things there and the art and all kinds of things that would not have uh, been at my disposal had I not been on the road.
0: Yeah it's it's really really fascinating. And I think that uh this you know in a way inspirational stagnation that many of us have felt this last year is really going to come bursting forth. Mm. And it it would be great if we just had a sense and a process and some way to channel that energy yeah into into something that has a little bit more you know sustainable lasting effect on what we do.
1: Yeah it it really it really is and and I'll tell you being home uh, particularly with my kids over the last uh, year and a half we have a 7 year old and I am able to go to the park with her and to experience life through her eyes and every day it's an adventure and mm-hmm. it makes me in in some ways it makes me want to continue that that kind of child like playfulness uh even when you know the 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 school year resumes and and the kids aren't here every single day.
0: It is. It's, it's really nice. And and one of the things that I love to do that makes me feel like a kid is ride a bike. And we, we, you know, we started this last summer, my husband and I and our three kids every Thursday night, there's a little town about an hour each way bike ride and we'd ride there, eat dinner and ride our bike bikes home. And it was something that we really looked forward to now this summer. And it's, it's such a childlike experience, you know the the feeling of being out and free and rolling, the wind in your hair, and and the things that you see. I mean, I I live in Colorado, so we see things like deer, snakes, you know, signs for rattlesnakes, uh, with, you know, <laughs> raccoons. We saw a porcupine last week, and when you stop and look at all of these things, I mean, you see porcupines on. Nature shows, but you know, I was probably within five or six feet of it. Wow! We just kind of had a good look at each other. <laughs> you know, those 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 are really childlike moments that are filled with wonder. As long as you stop, and you know, like you said, put your phone down and really be present with them.
1: Yeah. Well, this is interesting because I think you know, 180 degrees away from that is the business world where we're kind of getting getting hammered over the heads with leaders who are like be creative be innovative and there's pressure to to deliver and you're always on slack or email and it doesn't seem like there's time to kind of decompress and observe and be grateful for things and and slow down in a way that you can be inspired to innovate so how, how, do we, how do people begin to kind of unravel from that and find that time or find that uh, process for innovation?
0: And I think that's one of the, the toughest things. One is that, these, is that leaders give these directives to be creative and be innovative. And one, there's not a, a clear definition of what that is. I think that's one of the struggles for a lot of people mm. and a lot of companies. But I think the other one, and, and I heard John Cleese speak one time at a conference, and I thought this was fabulous advice. He said, we all think that we need to go, you know, sit on top of a mountain and, and just be and be Zen and, and these creative ideas or senses or innovative thoughts will come to us or that we need this giant space in which to create. But he said, doing something as simple as going to a park and setting a timer on your watch or your phone for 15 minutes and just looking around does wonders mm. and the reason that the timer matters so much is because then you give your brain space even if it's just for 15 minutes to relax mm. and you don't have to think about your to-do list your email inbox your you know everything else that makes your mind go mm. and i think he he may have even said 30 minutes cuz generally it takes about you know 15 minutes for your mind to start to relax and unwind and Stop with all the squirrelisms and, and, and monkey mind. But you have bumpers on each side of that space. So you know that you're, you know, as your calendar comes up to that time, you know you have that break coming. Yeah. And you don't have to be preoccupied with what's next because you've set a timer and you know you aren't going to go an hour, two, three, or four and then miss everything that has to be done that day. Yeah. So it's a nice, nice way to scrape some things aside from your day and be very intentional about having that time. And it's, it's really interesting that the more consistently you do that, the more your brain starts to connect some dots about, you know, what, what seems to you super random things like, wow, I ate fish and chips the other night, and now I've got this new idea for this project I'm working on. But that's just how your brain works, as long as you give it some space to do what it does naturally.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And it, it's interesting because... I recall watching Mad Men some years ago when it was first on. And I had worked in an advertising agency probably about, oh gosh, 15, 20 years ago. And I remember our creative team just working very hard, you know, heads down on the desk. And, you know, they would confer with each other and do creative things as creatives do. But when I was watching Mad Men, I was astounded and actually encouraged when Don Draper the creative director there would pick up, leave the office and just go to a movie in the middle of the day. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting to me. It's not like he's actually just kind of sloughing off. I mean, he's actually removing himself from that office environment, going somewhere else where he can kind of detach from it. Let his mind wander, maybe be inspired by what's up on the screen and come back refreshed or with new ideas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, his character in that show really understood the mental part of the creative process. But if, if you're on a deadline at an office... And you say, the idea isn't coming to me, but I'll be backing in mean, a good a movie right now. <laughs> that just doesn't go over very well. <laughs>
1: exactly. But I think
0: also one of the things that, that Don Draper understood <laughs> is, uh, is that it, it is a process. And and it's something that's repeatable, but the reason he was so great at it, and he would do this in meetings as well, is because he was so practiced at it. He did this over and over and over again. Mm. And it's just like, um, you know, if you your daughter at, at seven, if she's playing hopscotch or, you know, shooting a basketball or something, the more there's that rote repetition, the better she's going to get at it. And it's the same thing with training your mind to default to that habit of thinking when you're under pressure and need to think differently and come up with those ideas when it's most important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Well, we're talking with Carla Johnson, author of Rethink Innovation, How the World's Most Prolific Innovators Come Up With Great Ideas That Deliver Extraordinary Outcomes. If you have a question for Carla, simply uh, raise a hand. We'll have you up here on stage to participate in the discussion. Carla, one of the things uh, that struck me right out of the gate with your book is when you talked about the inspiration – for the book and and even the inspiration for the title. You know, as someone who believes in timeless ideas, I really, uh, the the story that you uh, shared there, both with uh, a young woman named Catherine and uh, old-fashioned memos uh, really resonated with me. You want to talk a little bit about your inspiration for the book?
0: Yeah, I'd be delighted. And so living in Colorado and in the south side of Denver, When I would, I mean, when I drive around now, but particularly when my kids are little and we would drive around, you'd see the snow-capped top of Pikes Peak pop up. And I would see it and I would say, hey, kids, that's where the song America the Beautiful was written. And I would start to sing it, which I won't put anybody through on, on our conversation today. But it was, it's that it was so spectacular. Every time I would see that view. And it was, it was really an understanding of how inspired Katherine Lee Bates was when she stood on top of this mountain and she could look in all directions. And she traveled to Colorado in, in, the, in the late 1800s, you know, probably mostly by train, and she went across the country and she looked at the white buildings in Chicago and she saw the wheat fields of Kansas and she came to Colorado Springs to take some summer classes. And it was when she was on top of that mountain that she became so inspired and went back to her hotel room and scratched down this poem. And it was this poem that turned into America the Beautiful. And it's and it's a song that has really rivaled the Star-Spangled Banner as our national anthem. But it was something so simple as just being fully present and aware and you know a century before smartphones that take our take our attention away, and she was one of the most prolific innovators in history i mean this was a a single woman who was traveling by herself and she traveled in many parts of the world and this was a time when a lot of women didn't leave the the social safety of their parlors in their home and you know she mentored young writers and she worked toward um reducing stereotypes about sexism and and so many things that were just not things you talked about during the time, but she could do it because she naturally connected the dots between things around her that inspired her and how she wove that into the work that she did. And I think that's a big misunderstanding about innovation and to your point about the, the title of the book. When I started working so many years ago, it was paper memos. And on the memo, it was who the memo was to and who it was from. And then there was this line that was capital R, capital E, colon. And it was short for regarding. And it was about, you know, this memo is regarding. And you would put the topic of the memo. And so I I took inspiration from that for the name of the book. And so the name of the book is R-E, colon, Think Innovation. And it's because I really am, am deeply passionate about changing the way we think about innovation. And there's so much about the stereotype of innovation that it has to be complex, it has to be complicated, time-consuming, really expensive, and just a real burden, emotional burden and and overwhelming, and that it's only a specific type or group of people who are allowed to innovate. And and that's why everybody else in, in most companies say, I'm not an innovator, I'm not the creative type, like I don't know how, and it was such a juxtaposition to this research that I found about the guy who did the assessments on the five-year-olds and found out that 98% of them perform at the genius level of creative thinking, which is key to innovation. Mm. And it's, it's, it's that we think you have to be trained into innovation and how to be an innovator when actually it's something totally natural to all of us if we just let ourselves go back to thinking like a seven-year-old mm. and, and playing and, and letting our, our brains do what it does very naturally.
1: Now, I would imagine in your research, Carla, you've come across companies that have an that literally have an innovation department. Uh, yes, I, I, it's it's not common, but you do see it from time to time. What are your thoughts on you know kind of compartmentalizing or departmentalizing innovation?
0: Well, and I I have a third point that I'll add that I've really seen happen this last year. but, But the first two is that when you have a specific group of people or a team who's responsible for innovation and you ask somebody else to get deep into problem solving and looking for opportunities and critical thinking that are the foundations of innovation, they say, you know, that's not my job. That's what everybody else does. You know, that's the innovation team's job. And the an interesting thing is that 90% of innovation happens outside of product or service development. So here's the core heart of the company that has all the opportunity in the world to innovate, saying, that's not my job. Or else they'll look at that group and they'll say, you know what, um, I'm just not smart enough. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a data analyst. I'm not a design thinker. I'm not a, you know, a, a lot of other random credentials for who qualifies to be an innovator. But I've I've had heads of innovation say to me, we need to have this larger conversation because the rest of the organization, this other 90%, is expecting us to solve all of these problems. And, you know, we're here for the products and the service lines. We're not here to solve every you know, problem that the company has. But I, I think also what I've seen in this last year is that, when times get tough and budgets get cut, I've seen these innovation groups shrunk or done away with altogether. And that underlying message is innovation isn't a priority. It's a nice to have. It's not a have to have. So now people start to see, oh, I don't want to associate myself too close to innovation because we see what happens when times get tough. And and I don't want to do anything to get my head any closer to that chopping block than it absolutely has to be.
1: Yeah. I, I could see how that would be, that would be apparent. So, and, and, and look, when you, when you put innovation in the hands of one department, or at least title it, uh, that way, it, it's difficult because they aren't out there doing the things that other team members are doing, so they don't necessarily see what needs to be changed or improved or, uh, what the possibilities are. They're not interacting with customers the same way. So, when, when we do have, these compartmentalizations. How do we start to cross germinate and get people to uh, to collaborate? You know, our, our last a couple episodes ago, we talked about collaboration. Um, talk a little bit about why collaboration is so important in innovation.
0: You know, and it's it's one of those things that if you are in a room with everybody who has the same opinion or same outlook or same experience as you if we're looking at connecting the dots to come up with great ideas you don't have a lot of dots to connect because everybody shares the same dots you know if it's if it's an in-group innovation group and everybody has the same type of degree same background all of this there's not a lot of diversity in those dots to connect or how they're connected but when you start to bring people in from other areas like even i think about how much um, HR was affected when marketing started to become involved in telling the story. Let's talk about how we look at the experience, the employee experience of being recruited, onboarded, and all of these things. It's an interesting dynamic that happens then because you have so much more experience, um, exposure to customers, exposure to employees, all of these different things that, that create these dots that we connect And we start to look at different ways and even uncover opportunities to be innovative in ways that we haven't thought of before. And I remember one company I had read about that was a fairly large company. They were starting to look at companies like Uber, who's able to find, hire, onboard, and get on the job and working in a very, very short amount of time. And you think about a a normal corporate process for hiring and and getting somebody to accept that job and then getting them into the office and working, it can be months. And in understanding what is around us that we can start to take inspiration from and how do we start to create these teams, one of the things that I did is that I looked into how people are brought into a company. And, And most of the time what companies do is they, you know, they write up that job description and they say, Here's the, the activities that need to be done in this job, and here's the behavior that's expected because of that job. But then if that person moves to another position in a company, those activities and the behavior changes. And when we look at this, what we've done is created this silo, even in our own minds of how we look at people. You are this person because you have this job title. But what I found is that people all have a natural way that they come up with ideas and collaborate and, and work on them with each other. And there's six different archetypes that I came up with. And what I found is that this is one of those senses that you that you say, like, let's go talk to Scott because he's a natural leader and he'll understand how to get everybody on the same page. Or let's go talk to Carla because she she just knows how to take something that's kind of chaotic and put a storyline thread to it. Mm. And those are things that I saw as archetypes of people, how like the behavior that never changes, it doesn't matter what company they work for or what job that they're in. And it's when we start to look at ideas from that kind of perspective and build teams around them in that way. One thing that it does is start to build collaboration across departments Mm. because you can have one person who's a storyteller in, in marketing and somebody who's a strategist in finance, and and they can start to have the, the conversation about this idea, and it's very different than if you have a strategist for marketing because their experience is different. And these are the kind of things that help build that collaboration and help understand what does it truly take for this idea to be great in this company and tell that story of it that has empathy for our customers and get it through all of those political and bureaucratic potholes and make sure that we collaborate with the right people and get this idea to the position it needs to be and get it out the door.
1: Yeah, yeah. But well, you, you identified, as you said, six archetypes. Um, can two, Two-part question here. Can you run through what each of those uh, archetypes is, and is it necessary to have all six?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the six that I discovered are a strategist, a collaborator, a culture shaper, a provocateur, a psychologist, and an orchestrator. So a strategist is probably one that is most relatable to people because they're the kind of people who like to create that strategy and get things done, and they know how to prioritize. And their real big priority is getting things done and and delivering value. And that's why a lot of times strategists feel like the go-to person to get a new idea out the door and and bring it across the finish line. Then we have the collaborator. And, And for any idea to go anywhere, you have to get people to collaborate with each other. And they're really great at bringing people together to understand how to make an idea a lot better and then champion them And an interesting characteristic of a collaborator is that they're not particularly that interested in getting their own personal credit for that idea. They're more about building the bonds Mm. so that an idea has that greater chance of of being successful. Then we have the culture shapers, and I think this is one that's probably becoming more understood as we have the rise of the storyteller in, in companies And they're the ones that really are able to oversee how an idea and innovation is being expressed. And they are able to um, even almost sculpt that perception of it and articulate the value of it and and what it really means to people in a company so that people understand it and know how to talk about it. Then we have the provocateur, and I have to say I, I am guilty as a provocateur it's those are the people who are always challenging that status quo. So they're they're these non-conformist thinkers and they're really um very prolific idea generators. And generally their ideas are pretty original. But sometimes they can get on people's nerves because they're always like, Hey, how about this? What about this? Like people just want to say, Can't you just leave it be? You know. And then we have the psychologists, and they're the ones who really smash that traditional perspective of highly rational approach to solving problems and innovation and all of the matrices and processes and flowcharts and everything else around that, because they look at the empathy side of an idea. You know, how does it feel to be a consumer of this idea, whatever that idea may be? And they're excellent at understanding the role of trust in innovation and also in business. And I think that's something that, especially this last year, year and a half that we've been through, is, is so mm-hmm. important as it comes to innovation. Yeah. And then the last one is that orchestrator. And, and I think the orchestrators are similar to what um, Seth Godin talked about, those linchpins. They are these fearless leaders who understand how to maneuver um, the political system. They understand the, how to have those conversations that seem hard to have, and they're, they're really willing to have them earlier in the process rather than I think a lot of the others are more like, you know, let's just wait it out and and see what it's like. But they're able to drive the reputation and, and the relationship that people have with the idea of innovation across the company. And everything that I've seen says people have one core archetype. However, they may say, I really see myself in two or three of these. And what happens is that they've been in a situation where they've had to behave or play the role of that other archetype mm-hmm. so often that they can really relate to it and, and they feel that that's, that that's how they are. And so you don't necessarily have to have all six on a team to be successful, but the people who are on the team need to be able to ask the questions and look at the situation from the point of view of the other archetypes that maybe aren't in the room.
1: Mm. Would you say of, of those six, that is there any one... Essential archetype that you can't do without in in an innovative mindset.
0: You know, I it would be I would be hard pressed. I would I would almost say the fearless leader, the orchestrator, because their willingness to champion ideas. Mm. But the interesting thing, Scott, is that the that is the most rare of the archetypes. There's only eight percent of people who register as an orchestrator. Sure,
1: sure. Is it a bad thing that I identify with all six of the
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, and I think your point, like as a leader, I think you have to step into all of these different archetypes. And I think leaders, it's it's not unusual for them to say, I really see myself in all of them. <clears throat> and that's because they, they have become leaders because they understand the need for the use of each of these archetypes in the different situations.
1: Mm. No, That's a good point. That's an excellent point. Well, we are speaking with Carla Johnson, author of Rethink Innovation, the latest book about how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. If you'd like to come up to the stage and have a conversation, ask a question, talk about innovation in any way, shape, or form, we invite you to do that. So, uh, Carla, you, you... you mention a concept which I was really fascinated by called the perpetual innovation process. And I, I think this is a nod toward, you know, innovation not being a, you know, a limited engagement. You know, it's not like, oh, let's go innovate and now we're done and, you know, we'll go back to work. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the concept of the perpetual innovation process is and how we can start building that mindset into what we do?
0: And thanks for asking that question, Scott, because it's one thing that I realized really differentiated the people that I researched and interviewed is this idea of perpetuality. And I think, I mean, as a leader, it's not about being a leader once in a single situation and then you're a leader for life. You know, these are these are things that you have to continue to do. You have to perpetually behave as a leader to continue to be a leader and the same is true with being an innovator. And as I, I looked at my own process for coming up with ideas, and then as I started to reach out and do interviews, one of the things that I started out in the early days asking is, where did you get the idea for this thing that turned out so magnificently? And inevitably people would say, I, you know, I don't know, it just came to me. So then I thought, okay, let's, <laughs> let's put on my thinking hat. Let me think a little bit like a strategist. And I said, okay, well, let's, like, where were you when this idea popped into your head? And people could remember that. Like, that part was really clear. And then I would ask them, and, and what were you doing right before that? And, and, you know, a couple of days before that, what were you doing? And then it was a, um, a matter of taking people in reverse order through that journey. You know, essentially reverse engineering their process with how they came up with the idea. And the interesting thing was, is that it didn't take long to understand that everybody used the same process, whether they realized it or not. Mm. And then when I went back to the earlier people who I spoke with to try and decipher the process, and I said, here's what I'm finding. What do you think about that? They said, that, that actually is what I do. Yeah, now that you've mapped it out, that's exactly what I do. And, you know, back to our point of being like a seven-year-old, the first thing that they do is that these highly innovative people are first highly observant people. Mm. They are able to sit and really take in the world around them. Now, for people to start using the perpetual innovation process, all it takes for you as you start to learn this is to take that conscious time to be an observer. So going back to the park or wherever you want to spend a bit of time, it's really a matter of sitting and being observant and then starting to write down what it is that you observe. And I have, I have all sorts of random notebooks and moleskins that I've picked up at conferences over the years, and I make sure that I always have one with me. So if I'm at something as simple as, you know, in the, the waiting area of an airport or, you know, I don't necessarily pull it out in a grocery store. But when I have some extra time and I'm just sitting there, I just stop and I look around and tap into those five senses, and it's easy to use just your visual sense, but if you close your eyes and listen to everything around and you take a deep breath and inhale and see what you smell and, you know, what does the chair you're sitting on feel like and, you know, is there anything to taste? You know, if you sit in a mall next to a Cinnabon, you can taste the smell of a <laughs> Cinnabon, you know, and, and, and take those things in. So, so that's the first step is, is to be become an observer. And it's all of these different observations that you collect. Those are, those are essentially the dots if we talk about connecting the dots. And then that next step is to distill everything that you've observed. And the interesting thing is your brain naturally looks for patterns. So it's not hard for your brain to go from observation to distilling because that's just a, um, a genetic self-survival thing. We go into a location, you know, if we were living in the um, caveman age, we would go into an open field and we would observe everything around us and see what's there, and then we would start to distill. Like, what patterns are we seeing, or and what are those patterns telling us? You know, there's, there's no wind because none of the grass is moving and the birds are very still. And, and so that's something that's genetically wired into our brain is to find those patterns. And then the third step is to take these patterns, the things that we've distilled, and start to relate that into the work that we do. And sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to what labels you give to the patterns that you've distilled. You know, it can be something as simple as tall things. It can be people. It can be communication. I did one exercise, and, and the, the distilled category was just icky things. So we start to relate that into our work that we do, and we say, you know, What might be some icky things that we're doing for our customers that we don't even realize? And that starts to jog your brain to think in a way that it's not used to thinking. Even if it's the difference between what are the icky things that we're doing that that we don't realize that you've started to think versus what are good things that we can do for our customers? It seems like a subtle nuance, but it's very important and distinct when you move into that fourth step, which is generating ideas. And once you've started with these first three processes, these first three steps of the perpetual innovation process, by the time you get to the generation step, your mind is moving and going. And it's, it's looking for ways to answer a question. And one of the things I have people do before they even start op, op, the observation step is to uh, define an objective for the ideas that you're coming up with. Like what, what is it that you want to address? And so when you get to that generate step and you're starting to generate ideas to address that objective, you're coming from a whole different point of view than if you just started with that generate step and you're in a brainstorm session on Zoom or in a conference room or whatever. You're trying to go from zero to 100 in a matter of minutes. Mm. And I've been watching the the Olympic trials um, in swimming, and you, you see these athletes. They warm up. They prepare. They have a process so that when they have to perform in the instant, just like when we have to go into a conference room or meeting and come up with an idea, they're warmed up and it's no different. And then the fifth step then is to understand how to pitch an idea because it doesn't matter how amazing your idea is, Scott, a bad pitch can kill even the greatest of ideas. And when people start to pitch ideas and they, they explain the objective of, of what they're going to talk about and then – all they have to do is to tell the story of what inspired them what was a what did they distill into a pattern how does that relate into the work that you do and how was that the inspiration for the idea that you came up with and it's an interesting dynamic that happens because people feel like they have lived that journey personally so they can tell that story with greater confidence with greater passion with greater clarity and those three things right there Make a pitch tremendously stronger than if all you've done is is you know sat in a conference room and just come up with the best you could do, and then you try and tell a story of it because there's no inspiration there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fascinating the way you were able to uh, you know kind of look across innovations and pull out those similarities, and, and uh, you know how how the the human brain is is just wired for this not not only in coming up with the ideas but in receiving them as well. So I, that, that's fascinating.
0: It is. It is really interesting um, work to look into, and I have to say, I went down a rabbit hole of neuroscience more often <laughs> because it's it's the the natural way that your brain functions, yeah. and I think it's just it's a time as adults we just have to be reminded of that.
1: Yeah. Well, what what was your favorite uh, resource? for kind of ferreting out some of this? What, what, what was your, your go-to uh, place where you could say, yeah, I'm, I'm confirming some of these things I suspected, but now I'm seeing it more uh, in, in hard numbers?
0: I would go to those people who I saw as prolific innovators, mm. and I would talk through with them what I was seeing, and especially people who are innovators surround themselves with innovators, even though it's not that typical title and it's almost a better way to, to vet the, the ideas that I had and, and what I was seeing because it wasn't um, convoluted with expected behavior as an innovator. It was really more organic mm. to, see if, to see if that really was something tried and true that anybody outside of innovation could really learn and do. And I think... What really surprised me was the simplicity of all of this. Mm. And I think that's, that really bucks the stereotype of innovation. <laughs> that's fantastic, <Right? laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, I, I think this is a, a common thing. When you look at something and it, it, it seems so simple, usually when you unravel it, it's not. And yet, you know, so many things with regard to leadership are not rocket science. You know, it's, exactly. it's understanding the human mind and how we think and how we interact.
0: Yeah, and, you know, that's a good point. I came across something called the complexity bias, that we have this bias that we think if something is easy, it's not worthwhile. There's no value in it. And so the complexity bias is really large, I believe, in innovation, that it has to be complex, that it has to be convoluted, it has to require a lot of people, a lot of budget, a lot of time, a lot of complexity, or else it isn't actually worthwhile. But I mean, we've seen in, in so many things and, and Kathy Buttonbell is one of the people I talk about in the book. She jokes that her title instead of chief marketing officer is actually chief complexity reduction officer. Hmm. And when we look at companies that are being super innovative, that's one of the big things that they do is that they reduce the complexity around everything, everything that you have and interact with as a brand. I mean, you don't even have to go to the next episode of a show on Netflix they have reduced the com- level of complexity to such a level that all you have to do is sit there, and the next show will play. That's, you know that's incredibly innovative.
1: <laughs> it really is, and yet the process to get there is really complex. And that's I think mm-hmm. that's what some of the best um, conveyors of simple ideas or simple statements. You know, it, it's a process. It, it, it's like it goes back to that old uh, that old Canard. I. I uh, wrote you, uh, I would have written you a short letter, but I only had time to write you a long letter.
0: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, hey, thanks
1: for that. Uh, We have a uh, question or comment here from uh, my friend Joseline. Welcome to the stage.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for always bringing uh, attention to uh, very phenomenal individuals. Carla, I just found out about your book, so I've downloaded it already, started thumbing through it. Um, So my first question is, do you consider yourself a culture, because you wrote a book about innovation?
0: (laughs) That's an interesting question, and I, um, I am a provocateur through and through, but I have a deep love and appreciation for storytelling, which brings out that culture shaper in me. And I'm, you know, I'm probably a little bit like Scott. I see myself in many of the archetypes, although I would struggle to function fully as a strategist compared with a a true authentic strategist. But I see myself in a lot of them, but a culture shaper definitely is very close and near and dear to my heart as a storyteller.
2: And my final question is, well, I have tons of questions, but I want to leave it. <laughs> um, because I also see myself in a variety of different things. I also found that in the pro I'm an engineer and I use engineering for marketing. So in the process of coming up with strategies, I, I pull from various resources uh, and sometimes tangents lead to the most innovative ideas, which some people don't understand because they think that like Scott's point, watching a movie with Mad Men kind of analogy that sometimes people don't get the creative process and it is kind of like a process. So my general question is, are, Can innovation, can an innovative mind be taught or is it a naturally born entity that is developed over time?
0: I believe it's something that we're all born with, but, and I believe like any skill or ability, it can be improved and honed. I do think that people are born with different abilities, just like basketball players. You know, I, I, um, if you put me against a world-class basketball player, it doesn't matter how much I practice, we know who's going to come out ahead. You know, so, so there's, that, there's that level. But that was one of my main questions in writing the book was to answer the question, is the ability to consistently come up with great ideas that have a big impact something that can be taught and learned? And the answer is yes, and, and that goes back to the simplicity of the process because it's the simplicity that helps people start to relax around the idea of innovation and being an innovator. And they say, well, I, you know, I can certainly sit at a park for half an hour and write down everything I see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and, you know, all of my senses, that that I can do. And then you say, well, let's start to look for patterns. And then they realize, well, that I can do. You know, so it's the the... Small confidence building that comes with the simple steps that again our mind does naturally. It's just a matter of reminding ourselves that this is how we think and come up with ideas.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'll go. I again, I have tons of questions, but I want to let other folks uh chat in. But well, this is a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Scott, for bringing this uh this discussion to bear.
1: Absolutely, you know, we can we can keep going with you if you have more. I mean, other people are free to raise their hands, but as long as you're here. Let's keep going.
2: Great. So, Pablo Picasso, he was like a genius that was able to evolve. Uh, It seems like innovators are very optimistic. It seems like it would be contrary to be a pessimist and an innovator. Would you agree? I
0: would absolutely agree because I think one of the characteristics of a great innovator is that they're able to see opportunities.
2: Is there in the future, uh, like an innovation lab that teaches innovation, do you foresee this kind of growing into our educational system or is it too avant-garde for this type of subject? I,
0: I do see exactly that in the future, and you're you're peeking into my business strategy there, Joseline, but that's <laughs> that's exactly what I believe needs to happen and, and should be coming because it's that um, if you can catch kids – even before they get to the age of ten, the likelihood of them understanding that this is a natural way to be, and all of the societal and educational programming that tends to hit them about you know you need to grow up like you can't you can't be a kid forever, you need to be you know stop messing around so much now now I'm not saying that there isn't a point that you can't act like a seven year old all the time, you know, but there's the characteristics of how kids think and play and explore that need to be brought forward and rewarded and celebrated rather than reprimanded and scorned.
2: Yeah. Cause if I have the story correct, um, it was a child who came up with one of the most revolutionary ideas in photography with Kodak and a child asking, why couldn't they see the photo now? And then the father saying, well, why can't you do it? And he created the Instamatic, Kodak camera. Is, is that correct? Am I that's
0: the- ab- yep, that's absolutely right. So as a child, you don't have all of these rules and regulations about why something can or can't be done. And that's such a beautiful example. Thank you for bringing that up of, of how that sense of wonder and just looking around and, you know, who knew what was going on in that child's mind to say, well, why couldn't we? And here, look how, how the entire photography industry changed.
2: Yeah, it's just it's fascinating because a lot of even the innovations, like the 3M and the post-it note, was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's how we redefine the term mistake, and it's and I think there's a lot of that in innovation. It's failure; it either worked as expected or it didn't, and there's not a sense of well, let's let's learn from it, like let's test it, you know, let's try it out and just see what happens, and and there needs to be more of that.
2: And I'll finish with this, because you, you kind of alluded to this. this, this educational project. How soon are you to deploy it and how can we best support you? Because I'm sure you're going to need some visibility and some, um, let's go to your words, some integration, some fearless leadership. <laughs> you're going to need yes. some orchestrators. <laughs> you know, you're going to need a whole team to get it out and, and running. So how can we best support that?
0: I, you know, if you would, you can connect with me on, on LinkedIn, or go to my website carlajohnson.co. There's no am, it's just CO for Colorado, or like Colorado. But let's let's stay and and have um, let's continue the conversation. It's it's years out, but these are the early days. But that's that's a direction is to teach innovation as a mindset and not make it something that feels um, elusive, intimidating. You know, to really make it something that people enjoy and appreciate and can really identify themselves as innovators and innovative thinkers and one of my goals is to teach a million people how to become innovative thinkers by 2025. So I'm not going to be able to do that by myself. So I would love all the help that I could get to, have, to make that a reality.
2: Perfect. I've already went to your website and also tweeted this fabulous, timeless leadership on Twitter, which I think Scott had already retweeted. So thank you very much for bringing me up. and Thank you, Carla, for all this fantastic discussion.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Joseline. Uh, fantastic to have you on the show here. And boy, you ask some, uh, some really great questions. Uh, I may have to make you a co-host for the future, uh, at this point. Uh, fantastic <laughs> job there. You know, Carla, I, I was reminded as uh, you and Joseline were talking about this, this childlike wonder, this, um, this ability to ask, well, why can't something be done a certain way? And it reminded me of, I think it was Robert F Kennedy who actually quoted George Bernard Shaw who said there are those who look at things the way they are and ask why i dream of things that never were and ask why not and those those words i think we should, we ought to take to heart because i think we are it's it's too easy for us to get stuck in the status quo and in what we see before us instead of just approaching the world with more wonder.
0: I absolutely agree. And one of the um, one of the little nuances that I talk about in the process is the difference between three statements: How could we do something? How should we do something? And how might we do something? So if you ask yourself, even you can you can feel the the physical impact of these questions. How could I? You know, fill in the blank. How could I get in shape by the end of July to run a marathon? The first thing that goes through your mind is, I I don't know if I could. And you start to think of all the reasons you can't. And if you say, you know, how should I get into shape to run a marathon by the end of July? Your brain's gone. I don't know that I should. I don't know that I should even be going down this road. You know, I'm more of a, you know, Rick and Morty couch potato surfer. I'm not really much of a runner. (laughs) But then if you say, how might I become a marathon runner by the end of July, then your brain starts going, "Hmm, I don't know, you know, like maybe I should go talk to my local running store. Maybe I should, you know, then it starts to trip the wire that sends your brain down the path of figuring out how to make it happen. And, And that's very, Clear in the in the quote that you shared, Scott, is that that's how innovators think. But we can we can teach ourselves to ask ourselves or our teams these questions, and that changes everything about the outcome in the work that we do.
1: Mm, I love that. Again, coming back to uh, how we work together to uh, get something done. Well, Carla Johnson, author of Rethink Innovation. Uh, which you can find at rethinkinnovationbook.com. You can also find out more about Carla at carlajohnson.co. Carla, thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership.
0: Thank you. It was a delight to be here to talk through this, and thank you, everybody, for sharing part of your day with us.
1: Being a perpetual innovator means you're constantly observing, testing, and sharing the ideas you come up with. It's about the ability to be inspired by just about anything and to work together to make reliable ideas come to life for others. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more and become more for you, our leader.